You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, glad to have you with us. This morning we've got audio from Sunday morning's message at the bridge, where I spoke about the idea of reconciliation in context of communion. Early on in the message, you're going to hear that I take a little bit of a bunny trail on an announcement that I should have made earlier about how we are going to be supporting some Ukrainian refugee families who have found their way here to Kansas City. Now, I also show a QR code that I will reference in the message that you can't see listening to a podcast. If you'd like to help the Ukrainian refugees, you can go to thebridgekc.church. It's thebridgekc.church. When you donate there online, there will be an area that says special instructions or something like that. And you can click a box to send that entire gift towards the fund to help those who have just moved here from Ukraine. Thanks. Okay, those of you that are really concerned about time, start the clock. Now we're teaching, okay? Let's talk about reconciliation and celebrate communion. There are bags with communion emblems. If you could pass those out right now. We did this last week. I just want things in your hand. There's something tactile, isn't it? Even last week as we talked about communion, to have it there and to go, this is where we're going. Do that. Last week we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in communion and how he searches our heart with accuracy that outweighs anything we can do on our own. And I briefly mentioned during the message last week that I was going to talk about reconciliation. Now it should be noted that when I said I'm going to speak about reconciliation, I had given it about three seconds thought up until that point. I just felt that. Uh, In this fast, I've tried not to think too far ahead. And it just was what was on on my heart. It also should be mentioned that when I said we're going to speak on reconciliation, it got ridiculously quiet for a couple of seconds. It might be a fluke, but I don't think so. Most of us have situations in our past in which we have parted ways with people that we look back and we go, I wish it hadn't gone down that way. I just... Maybe it was inevitable, but I don't like the way it happened. Okay? So, uh, oh, let me press pause. Let me press pause on the clock. Okay, there's one more thing I want to tell you about. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Not sorry enough not to do it, but sorry. Uh, Giving. If you'd like to give, there is a bucket over here. There's a QR code. Leave that up for a second, though. Uh, You can point your camera at that. It really does work from a distance. But we met yesterday with our Ukrainian friends. The Ukrainians that were here two or three weeks ago, we met with the pastor who spoke English and we met with his family member who was in Ukraine when we prayed for them. They're all here, all 18 of them. They've made it. Most of them drove 1,400 kilometers around the fighting through, I believe, Moldova into Poland, gave their cars to other other Ukrainians there got on planes, flew to Mexico, and with the hope of, help of uh, Vicki Hartzell, local representative here, walked to the border where one of her representatives on the other side, they swing open the big gate, welcome to America, and they're all here in Kansas City now. They have almost nothing. 
Some of them came with literally the clothes on their backs. David Carnes and I met for about an hour and talked with them. And uh, they, they need toiletries. They need clothes. They need uh, food. Uh, these are people after my own heart. David was smart enough to say, what kind of food do you eat? And this Ukrainian said one of the few English words he knows, meat. Says, my people, my people. See you after the fast, okay? But they are in need. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, some of them, I believe, are going to be with us next week. If you would like to gather toiletries, they are not picky. They are just, they just, they've got, they've got uh, three couples. The rest of them are all children, some teenagers, whatnot. We'll, we'll be posting it online what the specific needs are with clothes. You can drop some clothes off at Zoe's house if you'd like. We'll have the address there. You can bring toiletries next week. We'll have some of them there. If you want to give financially, you can do that through the bridge. You can use this QR code, and on the form, there's a, uh, I think it says special instructions or something like that, and if you click that and open it and, and check the box where it says Ukraine Outreach, we will be buying them gift cards and helping those families with um, uh, whatever they need. They've come with nothing. They've got a year to get their act together until they can apply for citizenship. Uh, they're hard workers. They are mostly construction workers. They're verifying that they can actually work in the United States. They've been told yes and no. Ukrainians are rule followers. They're like, we're glad to be in America. We just want to figure out how to do everything the right way. I actually have great appreciation for that. And so that's particularly why I wanted to stop and mention that. You can give through that or give to General Fund. Okay. You forgive me for that? Yeah. Good. All right. Restart your clocks. Go to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. And I just want to read this as we dive into this idea of reconciliation. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me tell you, as someone with a lot of small children, nothing gets put away on its own. Coats, shoes, Legos, wrath, anger, malice, nothing gets put away. It just lays there. There are times in my home where I've thought, I wonder how long that coat will lay in the middle of the foyer. And apparently everyone else is playing the exact same game. Because until somebody actually picks it up and puts it away, nothing gets put away. Putting things away in your garage, in your house, or in your heart is active, not passive. It doesn't happen on its own over time. The coat never gets tired of laying in the foyer says, I guess I'll do it myself. Anger never gets tired of resting in your heart if you don't put it away. In fact, over time, without some sort of proactivity towards reconciliation, bitterness grows deep, and just because you don't feel it on the surface doesn't mean it's not dwelling in you. How many of you have ever been to Yellowstone? I love Yellowstone. Yellowstone has this great place called the Shoshone Geyser Basin, this huge valley. It's kind of dry. And uh, two things you notice when you pull up. One, it smells like hard-boiled eggs because of sulfur. And there are all these little holes all through the place that look like little woodland creatures might live in them, except periodically boiling hot water explodes out of them. There are no woodland creatures in these things. 
but they just look like holes in the ground. And all of a sudden, this hole in the ground that you were standing next to 10 minutes ago just explodes. In 2020, Park Police arrested three men who were caught at the Shoshone Geyser Basin trying to cook a chicken <laughs> in a geyser. They were just like, had it in a pot. Like, see how it works. And the crazy thing is it would have worked. The water gets hot enough. You would have got it over. Now, I cannot imagine what that chicken would have tasted like in that sulfur water. But my point is, if you walk into the Shoshone Geyser Basin between explosions, you wouldn't know what's in there. If you don't put bitterness that is deep in your heart that, that maybe nobody has ever seen, if you don't put it away, it's going to blow and you're going to hurt somebody, maybe even yourself. So before we dive into what the Bible says about reconciliation, let's talk a little bit about what happened to you. Like, what happened? You know, I have learned, it's one of the greatest questions to ask people. Don't ask them, why do you act that way? Ask them, what happened to you? Because the way they act that way is because something happened to them. Some things are so painful that we push away the very thought of it, but I've found it helpful when I am at odds with someone in my life to ask that question of myself. What happened to me? Like, what made, what, what, huh? Why am I like this? The need for reconciliation really normally derives from one of three angles. And just ask yourself as we talk about this, what happened to me? Why am I so mad? And the first angle sounds a little more drastic than the others, but they're all three vital or fatal. First one is this, it's abuse. Now don't make too much of the word abuse, but don't make too little of it either. Abuse takes place when someone in a position of power uses that power to get away with what they could not get away with if they didn't have the power. Okay? And what they're doing may be totally unrelated to their authority, but they wouldn't be able to pull it off if they didn't have the authority. And the potential for the abuse of authority is baked into every relationship where someone's in charge and someone is not. It specifically points out the power differentiation, the Bible does, even between parents and children. And how the parent, perhaps not intending, can operate in an abusive manner towards children. There's this verse in Colossians that is eating my lunch as a parent. Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It like goes out of its way to say, no, 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 no. Do not use your power differentiation to make stuff happen because you will discourage your, it's not even talking about physically wounding them. It's talking about wounding their heart. When I say it's eating my lunch, I've whacked my head against this scripture like five times this week. Never intending to be abusive to anybody, but just because I want to get stuff done in a hurry. And I Watch the look in my kid's face. I'm just being very vulnerable here. I step in this and I got to step back from it because it is, in essence, abusive of a power situation. And it doesn't physically wound anybody, but it discourages them. Abuse by nature of a power differentiation has a tremendously discouraging effect. And Jesus saw the abuse of power as something so real that he brought it up among his disciples and says, don't do this. Don't do this. He tells them in Mark 10, 
42 and 43, Jesus called to them, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise their authority over them. He says, don't let it be that way with you. Do not abuse the power situations you find yourself in. Anytime there is someone in a role of authority, be there Vladimir Putin or the president of your HOA, who sometimes acts like Vladimir Putin, anytime someone has authority, there is potential for abuse. Doesn't mean it always happens, but if it does happen, it is because the person in power is aware and could choose not to, but crosses the line. It could be a family member, could be a boss, could be a policeman, it could be a pastor, it could be sexual, it could be physical, it could be verbal, it could even be neglectful. But it's a common thread of victims of abuse that many of them would never even call it that. Because they're so convinced that the person in power is right that they make excuses for what was done to them. Some of you have been abused by those in power over you. And you're thinking, I would have never called it that. I'm not talking about repressive memories. I'm talking about not realizing what happened to you is what happened to you in part because they were in control and you thought if they're in charge, they must be right. The Bible is full of stories of people who were in control and were not right. They probably did not even think of it as abuse. They're just getting their needs met and getting stuff done. Just like a father going, come on guys, let's get this all done and discouraging their children. When you consider the power differentiation, you see abusive behavior throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes even between grown men. Jacob was abused to some extent by Laban. As he worked for him for pitiful wages and for the wrong woman for 20 years. For minimal pay and the wrong wife till he got the right wife. I love Rich Mullins, just an incredible writer, of course. He wrote it this way. He said, Jacob, he loved Rachel. And Rachel, she loved him. And Leah was just there for dramatic effect. And it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, but it sure does seem like an awful dirty trick. We read that story and we go, this is weird. Did Laban think of what he was doing as abusive? I'm sure he didn't. He just wanted to get things done. He was just getting his needs met. He was just taking care of business. He was just fulfilling his destiny. When your needs or your business or your destiny involves manipulating others in order to get it done, that's abuse. And if you've been manipulated or hurt so that someone else could achieve their destiny, that was abuse. As kingdom leaders, everybody here leads something. As kingdom leaders, when our needs, even our legitimate needs, become the purpose of those we are leading, we are abusing people. Now, if you were a victim, let me just say this. If you were a victim of abuse along the way of any sort, it was not your fault. We all have locked horns with people and gone, yeah, that was part of our fault. But when someone in a power structure has abused you, it was not your fault. There are not two sides to everything in some cases. You need to understand you did not deserve this and it was not God's plan. One of the interesting things about when you realize that, oh, 
maybe I have been abused by somebody along the way, is you suddenly find yourself in a strange power struggle and the abused now has power over the abuser. The power to administer grace or withhold it. Now, when I talk about administering grace to somebody who's abused you, I'm not talking about trusting them fully. That may be a very unwise move. But you literally hold in your hand the one thing that no one else can give them, which is grace. Jacob and Esau had history, and it was not good. It was actually abusive. Jacob, the grabber, had abused his brother and stolen his inheritance and then ran for the hills. Now, we just talked about Jacob having been abused by his father-in-law two times over. It's interesting how the things that we do tend to come back on us. But before that, he had abused his brother. And time has a funny way of softening his heart, and he wants to make it right, but he doesn't know if he can. And so he sheepishly gathers up all of his sheep and goats and goes back with his wives to meet his brother, expecting to take a beating for the abuse that he had handed out. The Bible says Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and he wept. In other words, the one who had been abused issued grace to the one who had done the abusing. And Jacob says to him in Genesis 33:10, "No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept this present from my hand, for I have seen your face." Get this. The one who he had abused is now welcoming him back. He says, "I've seen your face," and it's like seeing the face of God. When you have been abused or treated badly by somebody at whatever level, you have the ability to appear as God to them in forgiving them. Like they can see something in your face they may never see any other way. There are people who have wronged you, have legitimately hurt you deeply, did something awful, and you find yourself in a power position. You can withhold forgiveness or you can give them something that nobody on this earth can give them. You can show them the face of God. Say, Randy, you don't know what they did to me. You're right but I know what I've done. And I know that Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, before we got our act together, Christ died for us. Issues grace shows us the face of God when we did not expect it. And for some of you, your one last great act of defiance right now is withholding forgiveness to the one who did wrong to you. Like that's, that's your power play. I'm not suggesting rebooting it as if nothing ever happened. Grace is forgiveness, but you can forgive and still guard your heart. But I just want to implore you to that one who has wronged you so badly to realize the power play that you're making in withholding forgiveness from them. And it being a power play that Jesus did not exact on you. Some of you are here and you're hurt and you need to extend forgiveness because of you've abused. Others, because you're disappointed. There's a situation where maybe there's not a power differentiation. Maybe nobody lorded power over somebody else, but there is disappointment. You expected something and people didn't come through. You ever been disappointed in a, in a group of people or a person and gone, I didn't think you were going to do that. I can't believe you did that. I was hoping for this, but I got that. 
Disappointment can hang over us like a cloud. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you hope for something that didn't come, it can make you ill. Everyone knows the pain of not getting what you hoped you were going to get. That is the stuff that estranged relationships or bitterness towards employers or divorces are made of. Abuse and disappointment. Another way that we are hurt sometimes, it's not abuse, it's not a disappointment, it's just humiliation. People did things to us in a public realm that made us humiliated. I get this. The idea of being publicly criticized to the point that the enemy plays games with your head and those things that were said about you, you think everyone knows those things and believes them. There have been times I've had things said about me that I literally had to psych myself up to go into Target. Because I'm convinced that everybody in Target knows the things that nobody in Target gives a rip. But in my head, in my head, I'm humiliated. Some of you can relate to that overwhelming shame of other people's opinions. And it can haunt you because it speaks to your identity. It gets in your head. You start to even believe the lies that were said about you. To humiliate someone is the most devastating thing you can do. It is painful when people are human to you. When you should be able to expect one kind of behavior and you get something else. And the world treats this idea of abuse and disappointment with a, a particular bitterness that we cannot get past. And it says, you're just going to have to live without the rest of your life. That thing they did to you stinks to be you. That's your new identity. Those things that were spoken over you, live with it. Suck it up. But our past does not dictate our future. It is the essence of Christianity. Your past doesn't dictate your future. Most people think their past, what they did or what happened to them, dictates how they live the rest of their lives. In the East Indies, there's the idea of karma. You understand karma? You do something bad, bad things happen to you, bad things happen to you, more bad things happen to you. Karma says you get what you deserve, good or bad. And people kind of like that because there's a little justice baked into it, but they also hate it because they're afraid of what is coming to them, right? When you do something bad and something happens to you, I go, karma. When I do something bad and something happens to me, I think there's got to be another way. The miracle of the Bible is we don't get karma, we get reconciliation. The theme of reconciliation is as prominent in, the, in Scripture as the idea of sin. And just as every man and woman has sinned to some degree, there is reconciliation for that. And we are so caught up in the idea of degrees of sin and karma that we like that idea because we can always find somebody who gets, deserves something worse than we're going to get, right? And as long as there's somebody we're better than, we feel we must be good. Let me tell you how sin plays out in the life of people. Imagine if we were in a swimming contest, okay? Well, let's say myself and Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, most decorated Olympian of all time, also, coincidentally, a swimmer. They take us to the beach of California. They say the race is that direction to Hawaii. Now, 
I'll tell you right now, first to lose right here. Okay, North Dakota boy should not go near the water. Well, let's say from the islands, highly motivated. Okay, he's got a place to stay if he gets there. Drowns a little further out there than I did. Still drowns. Michael Phelps, a swimming machine, annihilates Walesa and I. Still drowns. Okay? The goal is such that nobody's going to get there without help. Heaven is such that nobody gets there without help. Whether you're me or Walesa or Michael Phelps, and it's a, it's just nobody gets there. Nobody's good enough. Nobody can measure up. And in that universal sense of despair where karma would say, stinks to drown. You were never going to make it anyway. The Lord reconciles us. Romans 5.10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were in, reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The more we understand the conditions under which Jesus offered all of us reconciliation, the more petty our legitimate hurts with people seem. Well, but Randy, but you don't know what they did to me. That's true. And I am deeply sorry for the hurts that you are carrying. I'm just drawing attention to a man who was devastated for some, having done nothing for our own sake, had every legitimate right to leave us all to our own devices and said, no, I'll die for them in spite of what they've done. And in light of what he did, suddenly my legitimate gripes pale in comparison. In light of Luke 23, 34, where he says, from the cross, Father, forgive them. What? You're bleeding. You're from the side, from the hands. And he goes, forgive. Father, no, 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 don't hold this against them. Father's like, they're still doing it. Don't hold it against them. So what, what is blocking us from extending reconciliation to those that have hurt us. Let's give you five characteristics here of reconciliation really quickly. And these, some of these are, are so bonehead obvious, but still need to be said. Reconciliation is hard. Okay, you know what they said. If it'd be easy, you'd have done it already. But reconciliation with those who have hurt you is hard, even when the rift is not your fault. It's far easier to ignore somebody's wrongdoings, stay out of the debate, don't open yourself up to having it again. It's easier to be quiet, let sleeping dogs lie, but we were not given a ministry of avoidance. Some of you are operating in the spirit of avoidance. Okay? There's that person who just, there's, when you see each other, both of your heart rates go up 14 points. And yet you manage to smile and say, fine, fine. We're not given the ministry of avoidance. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. And it's hard, even when you were innocent. My father had an uncle who, now that I think about it, his first name was probably Christian. For, right, am I right? We called him, they shortened it to Christ, which written out looked like Christ, which I never thought was strange until I made notes for this. But uh, we called him Christ. 
And this uncle was mad at our family for reasons that no human being really knew. I mean, like it was so, it was so long that uh, maybe somebody knew at some point, but I certainly grew up not didn't grow up knowing what it was about. It's hard to maintain anger in a small town because you keep seeing people. Okay. And I remember growing up as a kid and we would be in a hardware store and this uncle would come around the corner and see us and stop and turn around and go the other way. I don't mean a couple of times. I mean my entire childhood. And it almost became a, a point of humor with my dad. You'd have to know my dad. He had a strange sense of humor. But he would like, he would like you know, go around the other side and see him and, you know, <laughs> kind of mess with him a little bit. I'm in college, I'm probably 20 years old, and my dad calls me, and he says, my Uncle Chris's pastor just called me, and he's dying, and he wants me to come see him. Now, this is the guy who avoided us for decades, okay? I don't mean, this wasn't like a little tiff, this was like huge. And I said, what are you gonna do? And I remember my dad saying, I don't know. And in my 20-year-old wisdom, which was profound, you, should, you think I know a lot now. Oh, my word. It was unbearable in my 20s. I said, if you don't go see him, you're as bad as he is. I was right about a few things. So my dad goes to see him. Hadn't really talked to him in decades. Am I right, Mom? It had been, been decades I keep my mom here as a fact, uh, fact checker. <laughs> At some point she's going to go, it didn't happen that way. No, he's wrong. No, no, 20 years, they didn't talk longer than that. I never remember them talking. He goes to his home and realizing he's dying, he is asking for forgiveness and reconciling. He, my dad told me later, he said, I have missed out on so much knowing your family. He said, I was so angry, I hated you when I would see you in the store. And there was no reason for it. And he reconciled. But the interesting thing for me was when he reached out to my dad, my dad's like, should I go? Should I do it or not? Because it's hard. Even when you're innocent, it's hard. Even when your hands are clean. Sometimes you find yourself reconciling with people who don't think they have done anything wrong and they have no intention of apologizing and they don't take the social cues that they've hurt you. How do you respond to those people biblically? Luke 17, 3 and 4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Is it done yet? No, it's not done yet. If he sins again seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It is hard to be that person who continually bears the brunt of someone else's ungodly behavior. And the scripture says, keep extending, keep extending, keep extending. It's hard, but do it. The things you are called to do that will bear the greatest fruit in your life are the hardest. And the relational things are no different. The Bible invites you to do the hard work of reconciling with people because it is the example that Jesus gave us. We can't aspire to be Christ-like without demonstrating his heart to those who have wronged us. 
and it's hard. The second thing is this. Reconciliation is healthy. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 12, says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what the lame may be so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many have been defiled. That root of bitterness that grows up in us, that defiles us and those around us, it's unhealthy and it comes when we do not reconcile with people. Grew up Pentecostal. Uh, met my Pentecostal sister there, right there. We have, we talk long enough, we know people. Okay, I'm with the same people. We had a great conversation earlier. We got to reconnect. But I grew up Pentecostal. And one of the phrases that is used a lot in the Pentecostal church is the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Which loosely interpreted in the context was just don't do what the leader doesn't want you to do. Because that was always grieving the Holy Spirit. That's not what that means, okay? What does it say? Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. Do not grieve the Spirit, Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. I actually think the grieving of the Holy Spirit is largely hanging on to those things. The grieving of the Holy Spirit in your heart is hanging on to bitterness and not letting things go. Reconciliation is healthy even though it's hard. Bitterness has squelched the Holy Spirit far more than someone trying to overrun an orderly meeting ever has. It's hard. It's healthy. Three, it is proactive. The greatest lie that we ever tell ourselves is we will eventually reconcile. We'll, we'll eventually get to it. We'll get around to it. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. This is an action command. Okay? This is a go do it. This isn't a wait till it's convenient. This isn't, well, maybe we'll talk about it later. This is do it now. It's active. It's hard. It's healthy. It's proactive. Four, it is intensely practical. Practical. Worst case, or worst class I ever took in Bible college, philosophy. Terrible. Dr. Claude Black, Central Bible College, if you ever go, if he's still teaching. Sorry, Brother Black. Because... It was, now I understand philosophy is all about arguing. But I'm a little practical. I like to argue for a point. Like, is there, where are we going with this? And he loved just stirring these kids up over absolutely, it would just go in circles and it would just make my head explode. It wasn't helpful. Reconciliation, very practical. Matthew 5, 23 to 25. Therefore, when you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with an adversary. 
who is taking you to court. He tells this story. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. What's he saying? Reconcile because as hard as you may have to conceive this, it could get worse. How could it get worse? Stick around. Reconcile or it's practical. Land the issues before they fester and you end up being like one of those geyser holes boiling inside, ready to hurt anybody who wanders close trying to cook a chicken. Five, reconciliation is trust. But it's not trust of individuals, it is trust of God. You can forgive someone and even reconcile to some extent without placing yourself in a position where they can repeat the action to you. Okay? Over the past couple of years, I've had a couple of meetings where I've sat down with people. I have said what I've done wrong. They've said what they've done wrong. We have reconciled. I see them with some of those people now. It's actually easy to see them. Would have never guessed that. Do I necessarily think that they would trust me again or I would trust them again? That's a completely different conversation. But our hearts are no longer at odds with one another. And it can be so incredibly simply done. Romans 12, 17 and 18 says, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. What are you going to do to people? If they don't get right, the wrath of God is coming to them. You are not held responsible to make, make things fair. You are not the avenger. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Here's how we walk it out, okay? Some of you were afraid that I was going to talk about how to walk it out. Because <laughs> up until now, it's been all theoretical, and you can leave and not do anything. It's <laughs> so what I call the principle of graduated involvement. Doesn't that sound scholarly? It does. We could just pray right now and call it done. The, we're not going to. The, the principle of graduated involvement, okay? Simply put, do not go nuclear. Don't go postal. Don't go insert whatever your family says for it means going crazy. In reconciliation, involve the minimum number of people you have to to land it. Matthew 18, 15 to 18, is the gold standard of reconciliation. Does not always work exactly this way, but it is the gold standard. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. It would, I would also say, if you realize you are the one who sins, go, don't point out their fault, point out your own fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Some of the meetings I've had in the last year have just been me with one other person. If they will not listen, take two or, uh, one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let me stop there for a second. If you take two or three along, don't stack the deck. You know what I mean. Don't take the two people who believe everything you say. Take two or three along who can hear from a rational perspective. If they still refuse, tell it to the church. You see the graduated involvement here? Go one-to-one, -one. that doesn't work. 
go with someone else and that doesn't work. But don't go to the widest group of people. And, you know, have you ever seen an open mic night at a church go haywire? You know, I'd like to forgive Susan's sister Sally for how she, you know, it's like, don't do that. Sorry, well, another Sally, not this Sally. <laughs> Don't post a general passive-aggressive apology on Facebook. To whom? To the one who hurt me. Don't do that. That's only funny because people do it. There are times, though, when your apology does need to be heard by others. I had an experience about a year ago where somebody walked this out with me and honestly, it really touched my heart. They, uh, they called me or texted me and asked, can I send you an email? Which I thought was funny. <laughs> it's like, are you going to email me and then ask if you can call me? It's like, is that where this is going? <laughs> texted me, said, can I, can I send you an email? Well, now I'm curious. Sure, send me an email. They emailed me three sentences, literally three sentences. First sentence, Randy, I have sinned against you by, and they described exactly what they had done. Second sentence, I was wrong and I regret what I did. Third sentence, will you forgive me for this? Somebody who was very close to the situation, I talked with them, they looked at it, they're like, three sentences? I'm like, what else do you want? Like, they covered all the bases. But they had put in the CC about a dozen people, no, no, because those were the people they had said those things in front of. Later, they said, can I meet with you personally? We sat down, we met, they said, he said, I wanted to CC those people because those were the people I had wronged you in front of and I wanted them to know that I was wrong. Like, man, that is how it's done. I'm going to ask if our worship team would come up. Reconciliation is hard, but it is worth it. And this morning, I don't know what happened to you. I'm still trying to figure out what happened to me. But I do know that all of us have people in our past that we have not reconciled with. And there is a joy and a peace and a furtherance of the kingdom when we make things right with people and we do not continue in this tension. Take your emblems for communion there if you would. Stand with me for just a second. I want to ask Rachel to just lead us in a song. And as we do... Want to search your heart. Ask, ask the Holy Spirit. Search me and speak to me those to whom with I need to reconcile. Such a dangerous prayer. So uncomfortable. So profitable. Father, as we worship, speak to our hearts. Who are those that we need to reconcile with? Who are those that we by extending grace to could actually show the face of God to. Speak to your people this morning. And I'll never know how much it yes, cost Jesus. 
of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. You have given us such grace. God, that it would be our privilege to reflect that grace to others. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the bread. Father, we thank you for your broken body, the pain you endured, the humiliation and the abuse that you received at our hand so that you could extend grace to us. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, as we receive the drink, representative of your blood that was spilled, fell to the ground, 
even the ground was polluted with our sin. It was covered with your blood. In this action, we receive grace from you. We honor and recognize your death. We proclaim it until you come. And now I ask that you would make us a people of reconciliation. Right now, Lord, that as we leave this place, we would carry this with us, a sense of urgency. We've got to make it right because you made it right, Jesus. this one more time. Just give this to him. Sing it out with your whole heart. for forgiveness showing others the face of God in Jesus name Amen Amen God bless you if you need prayer some of us will be around we'd love to pray for you